Got it. Thank you. All right. Thank you all who uh, contributed to the meal tonight. Is everybody blessed with what we had tonight? Uh, plenty of good green salad, so the mommies are happy. And uh, the pizza, so all of the kids are happy. It was a good harmony. Would you agree? And all the husbands are going, whatever, feed me. Right? We're, husbands don't... What's that? Yeah, just put something in front of your husbands and they'll be all right, right? Um, and, and it's good. But uh, pizza night is always good. And so we had a good variety. And, 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 I, and I'm, I got to brag on the Fenchman family. They're my number one favorite family tonight. Um, and so they, tonight they carry the mantle of the pastor's favorite because they brought the barbecued, uh, the wings, the wings. Well, it was more like nuggets, like chicken nuggets, right? But it was the flavor. Oh, Tender and flavorful, just perfect. See, this is why I'm a Baptist pastor right here, right? Amen, amen. Well, um, we're going to be going uh, through the book of Amos for the next several weeks. Is this starting to be okay with the Minor Prophets? Y'all okay with continuing on Wednesday nights, deeper dive into some of these? Um, and it's important because, again, the Minor Prophets, the the Book of Twelve, if you want to use that language, uh, the Book of the Twelve Prophets, um, is rich. And, and much of this points to the coming of our Savior. I mean, the, the, the salvation gospel is all through the Minor Prophets. And so we're going to see this as we keep digging through, okay? Um, but tonight, um, let's read Amos chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 1 and then read through chapter 2, verse 5. Fair enough? Okay, Let, let's read along with me, Okay. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastors of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Haziel, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon, and him who holds the scepter from Beth-Aden. And the people of Syria shall go into exile to Ker, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod, and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of a brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Teman, and I will devour the strongholds of Basra. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of the Amorites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting in the day of battle, with the tempest in the day of the whirlwind. And her king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. Now chapter 2. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Kerioth, and Moab shall shall die amid uproar, amidst 
amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. And then we end with these two verses. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. I know that was lengthy, but it's important to get that rhythm of the poetry here, okay? Let's pray. Father God, you've given us uh, the words of your prophet Amos, a shepherd, a, a, a caretaker of an orchard of fig trees, one who may seem uh, insignificant, but somehow this shepherd in the wilderness that you called had a depth to him in his language and in his rhetoric. And so tonight, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see what you have, what you have said through this wonderful servant, Amos. Cause it, Father, to resonate in us. Cause us to see your, your glory in it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. So from last week, just a brief uh, review, and then we're going to jump into uh, what we just read. Okay. Who can, rem- who, who remembers where Amos was from? Tekoa. And where was, okay. Where'd you get that? Which verse? Verse 1, shepherds of Tekoa. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. Right? Uh, where was Tekoa? Yeah, kind of outside of Jerusalem, uh, kind of southwest-ish thereabouts. Um, so, and when did he prophesy? Yeah, right around here, around 760 to 750 B.C. See, Tanner is with it. He's looking right up here. See, this is what professors do in the classroom, right, Chad? We'll write things on the board, uh, and Lisa, where's Lisa? She here? You'll write things on the board, and you'll mention it to the students, and it's right there in front of them, and they just go, what? Uh, right, right. Tanner's smart. See, he's with it. He's, he's got it right there. All right, so 760 to 750 B.C. Now, here's the, here's the timeline here. Um, and you got to remember when you're in BC time, it's going backwards. Okay. So 760 to 750, um, about 30 years or so before the Assyrian exile. Because that's what's coming next. Right. So uh, if this is about the time period, so about roughly 30 years after this short period of about 10 years, well, we don't know exactly. So this is the window in that 10 year period. Um, 30 years after Amos, the Assyrians come and they take the northern kingdom of Israel, and it's no more. It never comes back. So this was it, all right? Um, Amos, again, and this is from last week, uh, his, his prophecy is described as coming in like, like the suddenness. It, the prophecy comes with the unexpected suddenness of an earthquake and the ferocity of a lion's roar. Right, we talked about that a little bit last week. Um, have you thought about that? The, the sound of a lion's roar. If you've never experienced, I've never experienced one really, uh, but I think Joe Loretta mentioned he had. Um, if you're around lions, they say uh, a lion's roar will cut you to the core. It will shake your bones. And so that's how this prophecy has been described. Okay, so kind of keep that in mind. Now, how do I want us to approach this? Um, what we just read tonight, uh, really the first chapter and the first five verses of chapter two, this is Amos's introduction to his prophecy. I want you to kind of put this in your mind. Picture this. Imagine Amos, this shepherd from Judah, the southern kingdom, going to real, I would suspect the King Jeroboam II himself or his court. Uh, some of the priests or the leaders, he's coming to them into the northern kingdom. So he's the enemy from the south, coming into the enemy territory of the north to Jeroboam. A shepherd walking into the royal court, and he starts to prophesy. Now, what we're looking at tonight is the 
just the beginning of this. Now, Amos is broken down into a series of oracles, poetry. It's, the whole thing is poetry. A lot of it is poetry and sermons. Well, I see a lot of those different things in here. Uh, so we have to remember, we have to keep that in mind as we read it. It's in the genre of poetry. It's a prophecy. And people who want to interpret all of Scripture in a literal method miss the point that poetry is not literal. Okay? It's figurative. You cannot impose literal interpretation on figurative language. Now, I've got a lot of people in the Reformed circles who will probably crucify me for saying that, but it's true. They want to... They want to interpret all of Scripture in a literal fashion. If the Word says it, it must mean it. Well, not necessarily in poetry. Does that make sense? How many of y'all studied poetry in school? How many of y'all enjoyed studying poetry in school? (laughs) One, (laughs) two, maybe three. You enjoyed poetry. Uh, If you don't enjoy poetry... Uh, you'll try to impose a literal interpretation on this, and you can't do that. But there's a lot here that we can that we can glean. So it's coming like a lion's roar. Imagine the shepherd walking into the court. Um, but let's get some background here. The northern kingdom of Israel at this point was in its most uh, economic, economically prosperous period of its history. More so, well, well since uh, since the time of Solomon, right? The time of Solomon when the kingdoms were united, was a very prosperous economic time. But this is about 150 years after the kingdom split, and it's another season, the most productive, most, most prosperous time for the northern tribes of Israel since Solomon. That's what's going on here. Okay, What happens when a nation is going through economic prosperity? They what? There's a strong tendency to, you don't need God right now. We're, we're taking care of ourselves. We're doing well. Well, we'll think about God when He comes to mind. Complacency. Would you agree? Has anybody ever been in that position in your own life? I mean, money's going well. Life at home's going well. Boss is pretty happy at work. Kids are behaving. Uh, husbands are behaving. Um, life is good. Bank account's full. We're actually saving some money. You ever had the, I don't know if you've ever had that time, but imagine you did. How would your attitude be about life? Probably pretty complacent. Okay. Take that attitude and apply it to Jeroboam II and the northern tribes of Israel during this prophecy and magnify it about a thousand times. Imagine a people of God who had God's law and were so complacent and lethargic about it. Oh, well, God, the blessings of God are evident. He loves us because we're so wealthy. Does this sound familiar? The name it and claim it prosperity gospel movement of today. If you are economically blessed, if the Lord has given you a big bank account, you must have His favor. Does that sound familiar? That was the northern tribe of Israel, the northern tribes of Israel, the northern kingdom. Okay. Uh, so the theme here that you could really imagine over the whole prophecy, and we're going to start here and really drive it home in this this first section that we read, chapter uh, one and up to verse five of chapter two. The theme is that the northern kingdom longed for the day of the Lord. And here's how they saw the day of the Lord. They saw it as when all of Israel's enemies would be judged and Israel would dominate the world. That's how they saw the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming and we are so blessed because God has given us all this wealth and all of this comfort and all of this prestige and we're ready to take over the world. Actually, at this time, Assyria had declined in its power. And, and they thought that Assyria was done. Assyria is weak. It's not going to be much longer before they're, they're wiped off the map. And we, Israel, will take over the world. That was the attitude. And then comes Amos. Guess what God's going to say? To think about this, I mean, when we think about the day of the Lord, what comes to mind in Scripture? When we, when we think of the day of the Lord, what 
how do you define the day of the Lord? Judgment day, darkness, God is mad at you, right? And so Israel saw the day of the Lord as a great light. Yes, God's wrath is coming, but God is coming after our enemies. That's what the northern kingdom of Israel said. That's how they thought of the day of the Lord. That's how they interpreted their time. Get it? Now, does that sound familiar to some folks? Has that idea come back in Christian circles? Not me attitude. Not me attitude. God loves me so much, He's going to get my enemies. But take it one step further. God is setting us up to take over the world. The kingdom is now coming through us. Does that sound like familiar? Who? Kingdom dominion theory that is so popular at, uh, is it Bethel Church in California? Is that the name of it? It's a big movement right now, Bethel. That's why we don't sing songs, Bethel music songs here. They have a publishing house. We intentionally, Nathan, I don't forbid it from Nathan because Nathan and I are on the same page, but Nathan and I will agree there will be no Bethel music sung here because the root of that theology is exactly what the northern kingdom of Israel was doing at the time of Amos. Hillsong. Hillsong's the same way, right? Um, now, some people may hear that. They say, oh, pastor, you're so mean. You can't say bad things against great music. Well, I can when the theology behind it is so demonic. And, and, and the Old Testament, I mean, the prophet, I mean, you want to know how to talk to people who are in the Name It and Claim It movement and the Bethel and Hillsong movements? Tell them to study the book of Amos. Do a book, Bible, I said this last week, do a Bible study in the book of Amos with them and really get them to see what's going on and that hopefully the Lord's Word will speak to them. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Whenever there's a new movement in the church, it's not so new. What did you say? Hill. Hillsong. You familiar with Hillsong? Out of Australia. Um, matter of fact, I think right now, I want to say in the last couple of months, I, I saw a news report, Hillsong is going on a, uh, I mean, they're going on tours. Okay, they have several musical groups out of the church under Hillsong Music touring the world, and they're selling out stadiums more so than secular music. Long time. Yeah, decades. Um, but see... There you go. There you go. See my point? But the point, that's nothing new. So we're all worried in the church. We wring our hands when these new movements come along. Oh, how do we confront them? Book of Amos is a good start. Let's listen to what Amos has to say. God spoke through Amos to the northern tribes of Israel because they had that same attitude. Catholicism was one of the first I'd say one of the first, I may not know of others, mm-hmm. uh, to encroach upon the Christian belief. Well, I would say the latter, uh, the, the, uh, I would say the latter part of what we now call the Catholic Church since the Council of Trent. Up to the Council of Trent, 15, what, 15? 1540s. 1540s. Up to, yeah, up to. 1545 through 63, I think. Okay, so, for, yeah. So the Council of Trent in that time period, around the 1450s, 1450s, from that point forward, that is how I would define the the current Catholic Church that we call the Catholic Church. Up till that point, we didn't have the divide, Puritans, I mean Protestants and Catholics. But it was at that crux that Martin Luther and the Reformers said, wait a minute, this is not the church, right? So prior to that, that's not a blanket statement, you said, but from that point forward in the modern period, I would agree with you. 1550 ish, 1560-ish Council of Trent. Um, that's from that point forward, that's a new Catholic Church, really, if you really want to argue it. And here's the, here's the interesting thing. When you read the Council of Trent, what they came up with, and Chad can uh, confirm this and tell me if I'm wrong at any point. Uh, the Protestants actually, you can actually take the Council of Trent and the Protestants say, yeah, that's us, because the Council of Trent was talking about was going against the Protestant movement. The Council of Trent said, here is what we are against, and everything they list is everything that the Protestants agree with. 
That's the irony. So if you really want to know what Protestant theology is, read the Council of Trent, but read it in the, in the light of the filter of, yeah, Catholics say they're against this, but we are for it. They have described us to a T. Right, Jim? Yeah, and that's the, that's the irony of it. Maybe we'll do a Bible study in the Council of Trent sometime and say, yeah, the Catholics hate this, but this is who we are. <laughs> it would be an ironic way to do it, but it would be biblical because they're going through Scripture with it, okay? All right, so you get the point. Here is, here's the attitude of the northern kingdom of Israel. They actually longed for the day of the Lord to come because in their mind, it was the day that the Lord would, His wrath would come against all their enemies, but Israel would be elevated and dominate the world. That's their attitude, okay? So, what we got to look at here, here's the breakdown of Amos. If you want to jot this down, you're welcome to. I'll leave this up here if you want to take a few notes. Well, you can't see that? She's back there squinting like this. But I'll leave this up. Feel free to come up and write this down, okay? The first six chapters of Amos um, are judgment oracles. What's an oracle? When you think about classic literature and stuff, what's an oracle? It's a speech, but it's a... Yeah, it's a statement, it's a declaration, but it's an oracle is generally a, a declaration or statement from a deity or a god. Uh, this is clearly coming from the one God. God is declaring an oracle through Amos. And these are the, the first six chapters are judgment oracles. Now look at the breakdown. What we just read, chapter 1, verse 2, through chapter 2, verse 5, is actually, it's uh, 5, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. There's actually seven judgments against the enemies of the northern tribes of Israel. In just the first, up to chapter 2, verse 5. From chapter 2, verse 6, all the way to chapter 6, one long series of oracles against the northern tribes of Israel. So Amos begins by declaring the judgment oracles against the seven enemies of the northern tribes of Israel. But then the rest of the prophecy is against Israel. What was the, where was the split between the southern and the northern? Well, you can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 12. Is that what you're asking? Are you looking, talking about the... Yes. Yeah, 1 Kings chapter 12 is where you need to read about that. Um, that is where the northern tribes of Israel broke away from the southern tribe of Judah. Tribes of Judah, yeah. Nothing really changed. Yeah. Well, here's what did change. Here's what did change. Yes, Judah is also included in in this. Uh, Judah is just as guilty, and God's wrath is coming against them too. But here's the difference: uh, Judah comes back, and and where does and Jesus Himself comes through the tribes of Judah. The northern tribes of Israel never come back. They're still lost. England. Is that where they went? You see what I'm saying? So this is part of biblical history that's part of the Old Testament that really if we understand it and grasp it, we get it. Wait a minute. God is going to deliver us through Judah. Even though they they fell, Judah will be the remnant that God holds. The rest of them, He just, He lets the enemies take them. And that's what, Assyria is the first beginning of that, okay, to take them away. Any other, okay, got it? All right, so imagine this scene. Well, first of all, okay, the first six chapters are judgment oracles, okay? The first chapter and a half is against seven nations. And then four and a half chapters or more are judgment oracles against Israel alone. Now, the latter part of Amos, chapters 7 through 9, are a series of visions. So the first part of Amos are oracles, declarations, I would imagine he's standing before kings and, and priests and declaring to them what God says. And in the latter half, he has visions looking to the future. Okay? And so that's where we're going to end up, and we'll take a really deep look at these visions here in a few weeks. Y'all cool with that? But tonight I want us to look at 
chapter 1 and chapter 2, these judgment oracles against the seven enemies of Israel. Now remember, when I say Israel, I mean the northern kingdom of Israel. Okay? And so they, there were seven enemies around them, Judah included in that. Okay? So let's take a look at these. Um, beginning in chapter 1, verse 2. Now, I don't know, in looking in your Bible, do you have a little header there before verse 2? What does it say? Judgment on Israel's neighbors. Neighbors. Yeah, judgment on Israel's neighbors. You could actually say judgment on Israel's enemies there if you want. This is what's coming. Now, imagine as we read this, picture this in your mind. Amos is standing before the king. And he starts talking about God's wrath against their enemies. If you're the king, how are you going to respond... That's the first thing you hear. Oh, this, this prophet of God is now talking about our enemies. What do you think's happening in this king's heart? Yes. Boosting his ego. Remember his attitude. The day of the Lord is coming and God is going to elevate us to take over the world. And here comes the prophet Amos and he starts telling you about your enemies getting wiped out by God. What's that going to do to your ego? Woohoo! Okay? That's what I want you to understand here as we read these. Just be, be Jeroboam the second for a minute as you listen to this. Okay? Here's Amos saying, And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Verse 3. Thus says the Lord. See, a good oracle begins that way. Right? Thus says the Lord. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Now, here's the poetry. What does it mean for three transgressions and for four? That's a poetic way of saying something. For three transgressions and for four. What's that? All of their transgressions. Yeah, that's part of it. All of your transgressions. How many nations are we talking about here? How many enemies? Seven, for three transgressions and for four. Get it? Add three and four. This is poetry. For three transgressions and for four. Talking about the seven, right? Because it, it repeats, right? If, as we read, remember as we read through this? Oh, here comes the next one. That's what poetry does. There's rhyme and meter, there's rhythm, there's repetition. Right? For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Where's Damascus? Today. Yeah, so, so this prophecy is against Syria. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have... Now, here's what we got. I want us to understand here. Every time that we start a new oracle tonight, I want us to try to figure out why God is punishing them. What is he mad about? Okay? Why is he mad? Why is he, why will he not revoke the punishment? Because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben Hadad. What is this? Okay, here is where, you know, like in verse four, I will send fire upon the house of Hazael. Well, if you interpret this literally, you're going to conclude, well, God is going to bring fire literally down from heaven upon this place. He has. I mean, we see that, right, in, in Scripture, but that's not what this means. It's a, it's a, it's a figurative language of God's wrath. I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael. Who was that? Um, he was, I mean, Think about the house of David. When we talk about the house of someone, we're talking about a monarchy, a dynasty. So the house of Hazael was a, a monarchy in Syria. And then the second part, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad was the reigning king of Syria at this time. He was the son of Hazael. So what is God saying here in verse 4 through Amos? I'm sending a fire upon the king and his family and his descendants, I'm wiping them out from Syria. 
a military coup, if you will, <laughs> taking them out. Well, it's like like in, in England right now. If if somebody really wanted to destroy England, they would go against the entire royal family. How would you wipe out the future of the royal family? Which one? The one that's in the States. Yeah, Harry. <laughs> I don't know. Didn't they disown him? Is he kind of out of the picture now? Yeah. Didn't he have to give that up? No, he didn't? Yeah, but he's making millions. <sighs> As a victim. As a victim. You see my point? He would be right here in the northern kingdom of Israel. Right. I'm a victim. God, uh, uh, God is so mad at me, but I'm so innocent. But you're so wealthy. See my point? <laughs> All right, we're not going to get political tonight, are we? Yeah. Okay. Uh, but you see, this is, but, but think about this. Imagine the irony and the sarcasm here in Amos. You getting it? Try to imagine this, imagine the sarcasm from Amos in the poetry. Right? Verse five, I will break the gate bar of Damascus. What's the gate bar? When you have a gate, how do you lock it? Yeah, you have this bar that goes across it, right? And it's supposed to be a very heavy bar that you can't break through. Well, God's power is so big, His fire that He brings down will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden. And the people of Syria shall go into exile. Okay, what's happening here? Um, he's mad at them because... They have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. They have treated Gilead. Imagine like you just run over something, right? What's a threshing floor? What are you doing with the threshing floor? Yeah, it takes a lot of weight, takes a lot of pressure, takes a lot of back and forth. and So they have treated Gilead like a threshing floor. They have this, this house of Hazel... This king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, has not treated people well. They are violent. They are angry. They are, they are abusive. Okay? War crimes. That's a good way to describe it. War crimes. Got it? And this would have to be an analogy because there couldn't be one gate. Correct. All right. Say again, literary yeah. language. It's figurative language. Right, God tearing down the strongholds, the opening, the gates to the city. When you tear down the gates of the city, you own the city. Right, so God is going to destroy. But what, how, what's the end of the prophecy here for them, for Syria? At the end of verse five, the people of Syria shall go into exile. I want to destroy your king. I'm going to destroy your monarchy. You will have no longer. You will no longer have a king. The people will be taken away in exile. That's the wrath of the Lord. Now, let's move on. Verse uh, 6. Thus saith the Lord. Here comes another oracle. Got it? For three transgressions of Gaza and for four. Here's the beginning. I will not revoke the punishment. Because, why? What have they done? Because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them to Edom. Who was Edom? Y'all remember? The Edomites, they were the descendants of Esau. Remember that? Um, but who is he talking to here? Uh, in this oracle, this is the oracle against Philistia, the Philistines. And here's the thing about this one in verses 6 through 8. There's no, I mean, you're going to mention four cities. There are five major cities in Philistia. The one that is not mentioned is Gath. Who was from Gath? Do you all remember that in biblical... Yeah, Goliath of Gath. So Gath is not mentioned, but the other four cities are mentioned. Why is this the case? There was no real capital in, in Philistia. Uh, it was really uh, whichever city and tribe that owned, uh, controlled that city was in power over the others, at that time that was the capital. But they kept getting overthrown. They kept overthrowing each other, and so the power kept shifting between all these cities. So God doesn't have one capital here. He's now mentioning all of these cities in, in Philistia, where Goliath was from. Um, I mean, this take, a, carrying away exiles into uh, and delivering them over to Edom. In other words, Philistia must have taken Jewish exiles and handed them over to the Edomites, 
who then handed them over to Babylon. Uh, this would have been this will this will happen you know, later. Um, actually, early happened in 586 BC is when it happened. That's one of the ideas. Uh, Obadiah's prophecy will really talk about this when we get there. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza. Gaza is one of the cities of Philistia. And it shall devour her strongholds. Verse 8, I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod. Here's another city. And him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. Another city. I will turn my hand against Ekron. Another city. And the remnant of the Philistines shall perish. What was their charge? And what was their, what were they guilty of? Slave trade. <laughs> right? Taking people into exile, selling them to their enemies. Do, pe- do, do countries do that in, in human history? Has that happened? I don't think God's very happy about that, is He? I don't think God would be pleased with that. So again, imagine you're the king of Israel. Uh, you, you are Jeroboam II listening to these oracles. Oh, wow, the Philistines are going to get it. Right? Um, oh, wow. Syria is going to get it. Now, let's keep going. Verse 9. Thus says the Lord, read with me, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because, why? They delivered up a whole people to Edom. Again, sounds like breaking the covenant here with with friends, selling them into slavery. Uh, because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember what? The covenant of brotherhood. What, what does your translation say, Bill? I don't have a translation. Okay. Yours just says, and do not remember the covenant, and it stops there. In verse 9, and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood is what mine says. Is that right? And brotherhood. Okay. So they are guilty of breaking the covenant of brotherhood. This is against Tyre. Where was Tyre? It was a coastal city on the Mediterranean, a port city. And apparently what they did, what, what God is mad about them, with them about, is that, again, they take up people and sell them over to Edom. <laughs> they had a covenant with Judah. They had a covenant with the people of God. And, so, and they, they broke that covenant and sold their brothers to the enemy. That's what breaking the covenant of brotherhood is. What y'all ever been betrayed? Somebody that was close, right? You had a covenant between you, a covenant of sisterhood, a covenant of brotherhood, a covenant of friendship, an agreement to help one another. And this person you have the covenant with, this brother of yours, this sister of yours, sells you to the enemy. It's, it's, not, it's not so much the war crime, it's the breaking of the promise that God's mad at here. You see that? Because remember, when you read this, why is, he, why is he mad? Because they did this and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. God's mad about that. He takes, he takes oaths very seriously, covenants very seriously. And Tyre broke the covenant with God's people. They're brothers, friends. Would God be mad about that? Yeah. Would you be mad about that? I hope we would be mad about that. All right, let's go to the next one. Verse 11. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Edom and for four I will not revoke the punishment. Because, why? He pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually. Who was Edom? Remember? This is against Edom. Who was Edom? Descendants of Esau, right? Remember the, uh, the covenant? Remember the blessing with his brother? What did he do? Esau sold his birthright. And what happened after that? After Jacob gets the birthright, what happens? What's that? Yeah, brothers getting mad at each other. Imagine. Y'all have brother. Are you mad at your brother, Tanner? Ethan, are you mad at your brother? Well, I hope that it doesn't continue. 
Because we have a historical precedent in Scripture that brothers who don't like each other ends up in this kind of a mess. Your descendants go to war with one another. Right? And God is not happy with one of you. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated according to, was it Malachi 5? See my point? That's what here, here in verse 11, God is now speaking through Amos, an oracle of judgment against Edom. What was Edom's problem? Uh, they, had a, they had a perpetual anger issue. That's what it says here um, at the end of verse 11. Because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. God is judging Edom because Esau never forgave his brother. And it continued to go through the generations and generations and generations, and anger festers. And God is passing a judgment against Edom for that. Another place that you can see this issue, if you're taking notes, in Numbers chapter 20, there is animosity between Edom and the other uh, tribes of Israel as they try to cross the Jordan. Remember, they get jealous of one another, and, and the descendants of Esau get... Well, think about this. Descendants of Esau are cousins of the children of Israel. They're cousins. You got cousins that are mad at you? You got cousins you can't get along with? It's nothing new. Um, then again in verse 12, it continues, So I will send a fire upon uh, Timon, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Two Edomite cities. So again, God is speaking through Amos about these cities. They will be destroyed as signs of God's wrath. Got that? All right, let's keep moving. Verse 13 through 15. Here's another oracle. Who's this for? Let's read, let's read verse 13 together. Y'all ready? This is where the rhythm comes in. For three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because, why? pregnant women in Gilead and they might that, that they might enlarge their borders. So what is it? Again, brutality, the sin of brutality against innocent women in war. They have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead. I mean, you can actually see this in Deuteronomy chapter 3 if you're taking notes. Deuteronomy chapter 3, the Ammonites, when they come, they, they, they rip open pregnant women. Pretty gross image. That And why do they do that? That they might enlarge their border. In other words, they're going to war. They are aggressive and, and, and vile and brutal against innocent pregnant women only for the reason of they want to enlarge their border. They want to expand their territory. That's a territorial dispute. They want more land, so they go kill the pregnant women. See how vile that is? And you can see that in Deuteronomy 3. Uh, I mean, this, there were tensions uh, between the Ammonites and tribes of, of Reuben and of Gad in uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. And that, they wanted to, in other words, territorial disputes. They want to grow their, 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 uh, grow their territory. But again, in verse 15, the end of all this, and their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together. So the Ammonites will go away. Yes, sir. I think it's interesting... In this text, especially, if you find it in other places, uh, the Old Testament is not opposed to war in general, yeah. but it is opposed to atrocity in the world. Moral issues. The morality, just war theory, if you want to go there, right? Yeah. In the Old Testament times, yeah, God called nations to war, especially righteous, godly nations against godless nations, right? It's part of it. But what we're seeing, I like Chad's point. What God is mad about here is the brutality of the war. You're tearing open pregnant women, right? War crimes, again, right? That's a good point. Now, let's go on to chapter 2. Uh, Thus says the Lord, again, right? Remember the repetition? Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, 
I will not revoke the punishment. So now we're looking at Moab. Why? Because what happened? He burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. Even though God just now spoke an a oracle against Edom, <laughs> now he's out against Moab for doing what? Burning the bones of the king of Edom to the point that it's dust. Lime, right? Because he burned to lime the bones of the king. Desecration of the dead. Not just take out the leader, disrespect the human body of the king. Right? But now notice this. In, at the end of chapter 1, verses 13 to 15 is, uh, are the Ammonites. And then in the beginning of chapter 2, it's the Moabites. Do you remember where the, the Ammonites and the Moabites came from? Yeah, they were Lot's children slash grandchildren. <laughs> remember uh, in Genesis chapter 19, what did Lot's daughters do? Because they wanted babies. <laughs> uh, well, but you know, they were, they were, they had been cast out. They were gone. They thought that the, their daughter, his daughters thought that they would never find husbands. The Ammonites and the Moabites come from that desecration and not following God's law. See where we're going? This is coming to a head here, <laughs> right? Incest. But what's the issue here with the Ammonites and the Moabites? The sin that God is mad about is not necessarily sin against Israel, nor is it sin against Judah. These nations weren't doing anything to Israel or to Judah. What were they doing? Why was God upset with them? They were what? Degrading the image of God in what way? Yeah. Disobeying His law. I mean, disrespect of God's law. I mean, the sins of these nations were against the universal justice of God. The, the, the absolute moral standard of God's moral law. If you look at these seven nations, well, the six so far, we've not gotten to Judah. The six nations we've looked at so far, God's anger against them is mostly because... You have gone against my moral law, the natural order of how you treat one another as human beings is gone. And it's evident in how they're treating one another. Well, I mean, some of the sins are, again, you know, you're selling uh, the children of Israel into and the children of Judah into slavery and handing them over to the uh, over to the Babylonians. That, you could say that's a sin against God's people, but it's more so the bigger point that God's mad about is you're treating human beings like property. There's no, I mean, you've, you've tossed away human value. And that's the very center of God's moral law, isn't it? Value. What do you value? If you, if you, if you value a human being no more then you would value an ant. What are you saying about God's law? You see, that's what God's mad about. We were created in His image. We value God's image in one another in the human race as God intended, but as, as actually a way to glorify God. And that's what we're seeing here. So this was sin against God's universal order, his universal justice, his universal sense of morality and right, his universal righteousness. That's what they were, that's what they were sinning against. Now, now in today's time, we, there would be, well, you can excuse them because they really weren't God's favorite people. It's God's fault because he chose one nation to be his favorite and these other nations were left out. And so they were justified in doing what they did, and God can't hold them accountable because God didn't call these six nations to be His people. that sound familiar? But God is saying, no. Through Amos, these nations will face my wrath. Now again, remember, 
You're in the northern tribe of Israel. Amos is speaking to you. You're the king. Oh, all of our enemies are going to get wiped out. God's going to get them. Don't forget that. Think about this. This is how Amos is starting his, his prophecy. He's reeling them in. Now, last one, the last nation to be talked about. Uh, chapter 2, verse 4. This is the oracle against Judah. Again, the southern tribe of Judah, southern tribes. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because why? What has Judah done? Rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their what? Lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. Now, Judah here is being judged in a unique way differently from these other six nations. What are they being judged for? Okay, why were they being... Well, these other nations rejected God's law. What's unique about Judah? They had example. They had a higher standard. God gave His law directly to the children of Israel. Even though Judah was split away from the northern tribes of Israel, these two nations, at one point when they were united, God gave His law to them. And they are held to a higher expectation in God's eyes. Do you get that? These other nations are held accountable because of moral failure, well, horrendous gross, moral sins, okay? But now Judah is being uh, being punished for rejecting the law of the Lord. But then what are their lies there uh, at the end of verse 4? But their lies have led them astray. What would the lies be? They've rejected the law of the Lord and they've gone after lies. What did they go after? Anybody? Whose lies their fathers followed. Yeah. The lies their fathers followed. Here's the poetry. What would that mean? Daniel, any thoughts? False gods. Your worship is a lie because you're worshiping a God that's not a God. You've rejected my law and you followed your lies. You're proud of your forms of of ritual and worship, but you're lying to yourself, you're lying to me, you've rejected me and followed your lies. That's what Judah's getting getting punished for, right? Worshiping other gods is a lie, isn't it? So, I mean, that right there could be the, the response to anyone who tells you, well, all religions at their core, have some truth to them. They're all looking for the same God. You ever heard that before? Yep. That's a lie. <laughs> and so if you're worshiping a false God, you're lying. You're following a lie. You're consumed by the lie. And God is punishing Judah for that. Now, we've come to Judah, right? There at, at chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Because it says in verse 5, God says, So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital city of the enemy of the northern tribes of Israel. So when you get to this point, Amos is now prophesying these oracles. He's sharing these oracles, I, I imagine, directly to King Jeroboam II, possibly. What's he done? He's talked to the king about his enemies. And what did you just say? He just set him up. You want to talk about a great study in rhetoric. You want to talk about a great study, Joe, in apologetics. How do you communicate the gospel? How do you communicate to people that they're sinners in need of a Savior? Follow this example. Amos has talked to Jeroboam II, the king of the northern tribes of Israel, who I, I described. Remember, Remember his attitude. The attitude was God is going to come and wipe out our enemies on the day of the Lord and we're going to be established and take over the world. And Amos has just fed into that. God's wrath is coming against your enemies, Jeroboam. 
And imagine where Jeroboam's head is at this point. <sighs> Thinking about Barney Fife now, right? Where he goes... <sighs> right? And then what comes? Here comes the rhetoric. <laughs> We're not going to jump into that tonight. We're going to hold on to that. Next week, if you want to start reading in verses, chapter 2, verse 6 and following... <laughs> now the hammer is going to get laid down on, on Israel. Amos has now set him up. Yes, sir. You know, this is one of the rhetorical masterpieces of the entire Bible. Yes. Both the cadence, the three transgressions, and before the way he works it beginning with the bad guys and leading out. Uh, the only thing, and I say this I say this advisedly. Mm-hmm. I sometimes wish I'd been born a black preacher. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. Preach like this today are people like Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge, and E. B. Hill. Yeah. And people like that who yeah. can put just get you in the palm of their hands and lead you wither and ground. Oh yeah. And that would be Amos here, wouldn't it? But now think about this. Where else did we see this kind of setup? Can you think of somebody else in the Old Testament? Yeah. Oh, I was gonna say in the New Testament, I think Paul when he was speaking to the Romans, he was talking about those who were not believers and talking about their horrible things they were doing that even pagans wouldn't do. And he, or actually, I'm sorry, he's talking about their transgressions, and he's like, now I know what you're thinking. You are kind of looking down on these people that I've just described. There you go. But you do things. You do the same thing. There you go. That's another thing. You want to say something, Daniel? I was just thinking Nathan and David. That's how I was going to, yeah. yeah. Nathan, the prophet Nathan going to, uh, to, Dan, to David. And tells him this story about this guy who steals a sheep, right? That was in Second Second Samuel twelve. I said I'd cheat my notes. I had looked that up earlier. Um, the golf analogy of setting the, tea, the ball on the tee, and then uh huh. See that? See, this is the study of rhetoric, guys. That's what uh, that's what Chad just commented on. Rhetoric is the how do you set up the argument to drive home the punch. And this Amos is beautiful in this. And man, I, I would have, you know, I'd like to see somebody who's in the, thea- in the theater, a thespian, take Amos and just dra- dramatize it. Wouldn't that be good, Chad? All right? And you can imagine that for, for three transgressions and for four. Oh, you know, and that rhythm, right? And, and setting up each oracle and each prophecy and each judgment. Boom, 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 boom. You see, and why did, I mean, why was it, why is this part of the human language? Why is this part of the biblical language? Because this would have been recited orally. Of course, now this was written. I mean, uh, I think a lot of scholars argue that, uh, did Amos, they think, wrote this, or at least some of his people wrote it down. It was one of the first prophets that was written. But you can imagine he was speaking this. Right? A shepherd from Judah goes to the enemy territory of Israel to go to the king. People are like if, if somebody from All Good Tennessee, a redneck mechanic or somebody, or a farmer from All Good Tennessee, goes to king, Kim Jong-un in North Korea. I have a word from the Lord. Thus says the Lord to you, king, king, uh, Kim Jong-un. That's the scene here. You got it? And now, we're gonna, now God's going to really lower the hammer. How many years until the flood from this point? Since the flood? To the flood. Well, the flood happened generations before this. Genesis, okay. Yeah, the Noah's flood would have happened in Genesis. This is several generations past that, a couple of thousand years past that. Yeah. So the flood would have been what B.C., do we think? We don't know for sure. Depends on if you like, if you hate science or not. <laughs> if you hate science, then you say it was shorter than it was longer. We, who knows? Nobody knows exactly when the flood was. Okay? Yeah. Uh, so, 
So was Damascus not part of northern Kenya at this time? Mm-mm. That was in Syria. Yeah, Damascus, Syria. We'll get wiped out. All right. Any other thoughts or questions? Y- y'all good? Y'all get the picture here of Amos? I just want to drive home the point of the image. I, just want, I want you to imagine the scene of what this is. Going. And so now, as we come back, now he's going to lay down the hammer on Jerusalem. Oh, not on Jerusalem, on Israel, the northern tribes. Okay? Cool. Y'all got enough to go home with? All right. So, good. Well, let's close in prayer. All right. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this chance to dive into your word. I do pray, Lord, that you would bring to our minds uh, exactly the, the tone of this prophecy and the meaning of it. Lord, I also pray that you would cause us to see, uh, as we go through this prophecy, where we are exactly like the northern kingdom of Israel in our attitude and in our pride. Lord, use your word to, to speak to us personally, but corporately as well. Show us, dear God, what it means to hear from your word and to be humbled by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys.